Well, not many of us write letters anymore. You know what a letter is, actually? You use a piece of paper, and you have a pen, and you write words, and then you fold it up, and then you put it in something called an envelope, and then you use something called a stamp, which you used to have to lick. I'm, telling, I'm giving away how old I am now. Now you just peel it off, and you put it on there, and you drop it in something called a mailbox, and then actually gets to someone's house. And they open it up and they receive this letter from you. Not many of us send letters anymore. Writing a letter is a bit of an art form. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes thoughtfulness. A letter, as you might recall from maybe your days of school or maybe if you did ever write a letter, it usually contains three parts. It contains an introduction. It contains the main body of the letter, of what you're trying to say. And then it contains a closing, a conclusion. And the introduction is sort of where we set the tone for the whole letter. Who you are who it's going to, your greeting of the other person, maybe why you're writing the letter before you get into it. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, is going to give us a master class in how to write an introduction to a letter as he writes to the church. And if you're not there already, head over to the book of Romans. We are starting our series in Romans today. If you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much. We preach what is called expositionally here. And that means that we come to a text of scripture and we expose the meaning of the text. I don't come to you, and everybody's going to roll their eyes, I don't come to you and give you five ways of how to have a happier Monday, and then give you 70,000 verses to which try to support the thought that I had in my mind, right? But if we do come to scripture, we're probably going to find out how to have a happier Monday, We just don't want to start with that. We want to start with the Word of God. We want to expose the meaning of the Word of God. And hopefully, the idea is that the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage that we are dealing with. We have recently preached through the the Ten Commandments, and we are starting our series this morning, very excited to do so, in the book of Romans. And if you remember, if you had been with us for the Ten Commandments series, week after week after week, I hope you were thoroughly convicted and full of guilt because that's the way we should be when we come to God's law, because we realize that we all fall far short of it. And I hope week after week that that conviction, that guilt of us, how we broke the law, drives us to the hope of the gospel. That's the idea. My master plan here was to spend 11 weeks in the Ten Commandments and then spend, I don't know, a couple months, years, in the rest of, of Romans and just soak in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans has been called by Luther the purest gospel. Every Christian, he says, should know it word for word as bread for the soul. He says it it is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much or too well. It is quite a recommendation for Mr. Luther. And so some introduction matters, right, as we, as we dig into this Romans written by the Apostle Paul, as best as we can tell in the mid to late 50s, not 1950s, 50s AD, most likely in Corinth, about that time, the Roman Empire was absolutely massive. They were the superpower, and Rome itself was the epicenter of it all. So map people rejoice, we have a map of the Roman Empire, which you can see Italy in the middle. Once again, I forgot my laser pointer. I don't do maps enough these days, and I always forget my laser pointer. All of the red that you see is the Roman Empire. About 
50 years, this was taken in one... Or taken. This was, <laughs> this was a picture of 117 AD. They really didn't have cameras back then. This was a picture of 117 AD. So, so if we go back maybe 50 years to where Paul was writing this letter, it had a population of about 75 million people. Rome itself had about 1 million people. With about 55% citizen, 15% foreigners, and 30% were slaves. It was quite literally, again, the center of the world. And many scholars think that Paul, who had never been to Rome, wanted to use the church at Rome as kind of a staging area, as kind of a headquarters for his next move to bring the gospel to Europe. So he was very excited about the church at Rome, but yet he had never been there. And so he writes this. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And if we pause there, in the first century, people wrote their names in the beginning of the letters. And so we know that Paul is writing this letter because he identifies himself in the beginning as the author. Not many scholars would debate that. It's pretty solid throughout all of church history. Everybody's on board with Paul writing this letter. His intros, though, are usually shorter. This is Paul's longest introduction and is also most theologically deep introduction of all his epistles. And I want to just park on this first verse just to make our first point as we look at what Paul writes. He calls himself three things, a servant of Jesus Christ, one who is called to be an apostle, and third, someone set apart for the gospel of God. And if we look at each one briefly, first, a Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant is doulos in the Greek. It's actually a bond servant. It actually means that someone who is exclusively in the service of someone else. You are completely and wholly devoted to them. In this case, Paul says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Completely and wholly devoted to him. Paul puts it first here to emphasize the messianic identity. So he says Christ Jesus. And it's that way in the Greek too. So he's trying to prove a point. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. And so it means anointed one. It means Messiah. And so right from the jump, Paul is declaring Jesus as the Messiah. Paul also says that he's called to be an apostle. And if you know your Bibles, you know that Paul one time was also called Saul. And Saul was a PhD in the Jewish law. Saul was a Pharisee. And when the Christian church started growing, Saul then hated the Christian church. And Saul persecuted the Christian church for a living. As we've been going through Acts at the diner on Wednesday mornings, we've seen Saul before he was converted, literally approving of the execution of Stephen. He would execute Christians. He would drag them off to prison. He was a man who hated Christianity. That until he was converted rather dramatically by Jesus Christ himself and became the Apostle Paul, sent on mission. Apostle means sent one. He was directly sent by Jesus Christ. Paul is a capital A Apostle, sent directly by Jesus Christ. There are no more capital A Apostles. They're all gone. There might be lowercase Apostles like us, it's not a good idea to go around calling yourself an apostle because that has a lot of connotation. But third, Paul says he is set apart for the gospel of God. If you set something apart, it is dedicated and devoted to a specific purpose. Paul has been set apart for the purpose of the gospel and he's called to preach the gospel. Scholar Douglas Moo put it this way, 
In saying that he's been set apart for the gospel of God, Paul is claiming his life is totally dedicated to God's active salvation in Christ. That's what Paul is saying, totally dedicated to this message. And I want us to pick up one important point right from this first verse. And here it is. The gospel calls us to complete devotion. The gospel calls us to complete devotion. The gospel is not something that we merely agree with intellectually or accept into our hearts, so to speak. The gospel calls us to complete devotion, as Paul indicates for himself. This may be as good a time of any to actually define the gospel, because we're going to be talking a lot about the gospel, so we've got to make sure that we understand what the gospel is. Paul says he is a, a servant set apart for the gospel of God. Our sermon series is called The Calling of the Gospel. Luther, again, called it the purest gospel. The whole book of Romans is one big exposition on the gospel. So what is the gospel? And the word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news of what God has done to save sinners through his son Jesus Christ. Save them from what? That's the question. And the bad news is, because we can't have good news without the bad news, the bad news is, is that we're saved from God's wrath for sin. We saw every week in the Ten Commandments series that we've all broken God's law, and therefore we're all guilty before him. It's his world, he created it, it's his law, and we have all broken it. The gospel is about God. The gospel isn't self-help, or the gospel isn't how much God needed us. It's about his justice, but it's also about his mercy. It's about his grace. It's about his love. In a few chapters in Romans 3.23, Paul will declare that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In a few chapters after that, Paul will declare that the wages of sin, meaning what we deserve, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the bad news is that we've all sinned. And that sin has separated us from God. And God is legit angry about that. And we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God intervening. As one of our friends says, interrupting our death. He jumped in and did something about it. And one of the best places, again, to go to that might be Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This was us. This is the bad news. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air, the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is set apart. That's what, what we are called to be wholly devoted to. The gospel is not necessarily a decision we make. The gospel is a lifestyle. The gospel is our whole hearts, wholly devoted to God. And Jesus, of course, doing the work on the cross that we will celebrate together and remember on Friday, absorbing all of the wrath of God, and then not staying dead, but then three days later being risen from the grave victoriously, which we'll celebrate in a week, 
proving that he was the Messiah, God in the flesh. And we just literally observed that and talked about that during communion. But this good news is not automatically just credited to our account. Sometimes we have that attitude like, hey, thanks God for you know, taking care of that pesky sin problem. I'm glad I don't have to worry about sin. I'm glad I don't have to go to hell. But there's something we have to do. The gospel is, it requires a response. And that response is repentance, which is turning from our sin and turning to Christ in full faith. That's what it means to respond. And then you're a Christian. That's when the Holy Spirit enters your life and your heart and your soul and opens your eyes to these things, these truths, and then you grow and you change more into the image of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is God's plan to save his people from his wrath for sin. We're going to spend the next several months digging deeply into that. The gospel, again, not a hobby, it's a lifestyle. And like Paul, if you are a Christian, church, we are all servants of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be his messengers, and we are all set apart for the gospel of God. And so first, the gospel calls us to complete devotion. Let's keep going and see what else it, it calls us to. Look at verse 2. I'm going to have to read verse 1 now, because verse 2, you know, just got to pick it up. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Like I said, not your average introduction here. He digs deep into this. And what does this whole section revolve around? This, these, these first maybe six verses, or maybe more particularly, who does this whole section revolve around? It revolves around Jesus. It revolves around God's Son. The gospel promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says. And so I'll give us the second point up front, and we'll work through it. The gospel calls us to complete devotion, but the gospel, secondly, calls us to Jesus. The gospel calls us to Jesus. John Calvin wrote, This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that the whole gospel is included in Christ, so that if anyone removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. No Jesus, no gospel. Paul says that up front, the gospel calls us to Jesus. If your gospel doesn't center on Christ, then you're not a Christian. It's not about being a good person. It's not about social justice. It's not about some arrangement that you have with you and your sin and the man upstairs and an understanding. It's about Jesus. Paul calls us to Jesus because only Jesus did everything Paul lists here. He was foretold by the Old Testament prophets as the Messiah who is to come. Our relationship with God is only based on Jesus because Jesus alone says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to him, the Father, through, except through him. If we look at verses 3 and 4 again, he even goes deeper. He says concerning his son, Jesus, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power, watch this, according to the Spirit of holiness. So Paul tells us more about who this Jesus is. He was descended from David in the flesh. He has to be from the line of David. That's what the Old, prophets, the Old Testament prophets said, and Jesus did. He was in the flesh. According to the flesh, he was an actual human being. You could, you could touch him. He had skin. He had bones. He ate. He slept. He got hungry. He got tired. He was a human being, born of a woman, but yet not conceived by the woman. Conceived through the Holy Spirit, thus proving his divinity. Calvin, again, helps us here. He says, two things must be found in Christ in order that we might be saved, divinity and humanity. You need them both. And that's what Paul says in verse 4. He's truly man and truly God. He says, according to the Spirit, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness that's in him. Now, full disclosure, there's been tons and tons of ink spilled on what this whole thing, according to the flesh, he was then declared to be the Son of God. I'm not a fan of ESV's translation of that word here, declared. It's really more appointed. It has that idea of it. That's why CSB goes in that direction if you're looking at that. But let's be clear, Jesus was always the Son of God. He always existed and he always was God's Son. The Trinity was not incomplete. But what we're seeing here in this passage is that Jesus Christ, much like the Holy Spirit in different ways, in different functions, now that Jesus has come and done the work of the cross and been resurrected, now he is appointed the Son of God in actual true power. It's actually happened. He's done the work. So he's always been the son of God. But after the resurrection, he is declared appointed in power because of his victory over sin and death. Jesus was both the man who fulfilled the prophecies from the line of David, and he was appointed to power after his glorious resurrection, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. What propelled him to do this? The spirit that was in him. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, the Word says. This is who we are called to. The Jesus who spans, as one theologian put it, two successive successive stages of redemptive history, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus bridges both of those together. We are called, the gospel calls us to Jesus. And so church, is your faith based on this Jesus? It was not based on this Jesus, the one Paul declares in verses 2 through 6. You're not a Christian. And that's not me saying that. That's the Apostle Paul saying that. A Jesus who didn't fulfill the Old Testament scriptures is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who is just a man, but not a God, not God, is not a saving Jesus. Jesus, a Jesus who wasn't crucified and dead and buried, is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who wasn't resurrected from the dead to take the throne of power and glory at God's right hand is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who isn't now God, fully God and fully man, is not a saving Jesus. And so ask yourself this, is this what my faith is based on? Is this my Jesus? Does the Jesus that I worship line up with what Paul says in this passage? So we are called to this Jesus in the gospel. And what are we called to? 
Look again at verses 5 through 6. Through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says again, there are three things we're called to Jesus for, to receive grace and apostleship and to bring about the obedience of faith. Why are we called to Jesus in the gospel? First, to receive grace. None of us would be anything but a smoldering pile of ash without grace. I hope we realize that. Without grace, we cannot stand before a holy God. Without the faith that we have in the work of Jesus Christ, we have no grace. We just read it. By grace, you have been saved. So first, we're called to grace. Grace is getting something far greater than we ever could imagine. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but grace is although we deserve it, we don't get that, but we also get something far greater. We get the forgiveness of sins. We get the grace of God himself. We get eternal life. We get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of the fruits of the Spirit and a million other spiritual fruits and blessings. So first we're called to Jesus because of grace. We're also called to Jesus for apostleship. And again, lowercase a, apostleship. Okay? Nobody started Ministry of the Apostle International Ministries and make lots of money, right? Don't do that. We're talking about a lowercase apostles, which we are still sent. We are still sent into this world. And we are sent to be witnesses for the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is probably talking about himself. Most guys think that, even though he says we Paul tends to use we when talking about himself for some reason. But it's more like the editorial we. Evidence, again, that there are no more apostles. He's referring to his fellow apostles. Right? But there's a sense, again, that we are all apostles. Lowercase a, apostles. We're all sent by Jesus. We all are saved by grace and given a mission by grace. But the third thing we're called to by Jesus to do here is perhaps the most practical. We're called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Faith and obedience are linked together. One commentator puts it this way. Obedience and faith are mutually interpreting. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. It's not just this faith that we have in our hearts, church. It's not just a little internal, private faith that we have. We're actually called to walk in it. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can't say that we're called to Jesus and not do what he says. The book of James tells us faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Obedience to the law can't save us. We learned that over and over and over again the last 11 weeks, right? No one obeys the law. We break it every single day. So we can only be saved by faith, but faith calls for obedience still. Note in our passage in Romans, Paul says that the obedience of faith is for what? It's for the authentic witness, the name, for the sake of the name of Jesus among the nations. And so, so track with me here, right? If we are Christians and we call ourselves Christians, but yet we don't act like Christians, what does that say about Christians? What does it say about Christ among the nations? People don't get a good idea of who Jesus was if we're not walking in the obedience of faith. We're bringing dishonor 
to the name of Jesus. And Paul says, no, we're called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. When we live lives that are authentic and legit, it actually brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. People see us and they see Jesus that we're reflecting. Not only that, our obedience of faith, what our lives actually look like is a witness to the world, but also to fellow Christians. He says that at the end of verse 6. It's a witness, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so church, what is our obedience saying to the world? What is our obedience saying to fellow Christians? What is our lack of obedience saying to the world or to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? The gospel calls us to Jesus, and Jesus calls us to grace, apostleship, and the, the obedience of faith. What else does the gospel call us to? I'm glad you asked. Right, look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are already loved by God, or loved by God, rather, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, and I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so now we transition to more of the content Paul tells us in verse 7, excuse me, that he's writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Saints means a Christian. So if you're a Christian here today, you are a saint. Congratulations. You're a saint. Saints means a Christian. Those who have been born again, those who understand the gospel. And he's writing to the church at Rome. Also, more important to remember, the church is not a building. Right? The church is believers. Right? The church is, is, is made up of believers. It's made up of people. The church, the word ecclesia, means gathering. It's a gathering of believers. It's not a building, and probably most likely at this time, the church at Rome didn't have a single building anyway. They probably had a lot of house churches that were meeting together. And he wishes them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see a little flash of the Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, and most likely the Spirit mentioned back in verse 4. In verse 8, he thanks them, or rather he thanks God for them. Why? Because their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. People hear about the church of Rome. And think about that. There is a growing, thriving, healthy church in the biggest city, in the biggest empire at that time. And that encourages people. People hear about the church in Rome. And again, as we see from Paul's letter, he's never been there. He wants to get there, but for some reason, he can't get there. He wants to get there. He loves them. He's not been there. Most guys think that, guess what? No apostle has ever been there. And so this church most likely started from people who would go to see Paul preaching or Peter preaching and then take that back to Rome. 
And you think how encouraging that is, that that little seed of faith then grows into the church. It's amazing. He's so thankful for them, thankful for their faith. Not only is he thankful, but he's faithful in prayer. He says in verses 9 through 13 that he honestly prays for them without ceasing. And specifically, he prays again that he might be able to visit them and see them. What else does he, why does he want to visit them? He wants to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them. He doesn't mention a specific spiritual gift. We can only surmise that Paul would assess the situation and whatever spiritual gift they needed, he would then apply that through the Holy Spirit and encourage them in the Spirit. What effect would that have on them? Look again at verse 12. He says, that is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He tells us encouragement. As a matter of fact, mutual encouragement. Both parties, Paul and the church, would be encouraged. Not only would Paul be able to encourage them, but they will be able to encourage Paul. I don't know if that's happened to any of you, but you will go and and come and be with somebody who might need help, might need encouragement, and then you are the one who actually gets encouraged. That would happen quite a bit when I would spend time with Ron Tishner. I would be the one that was being encouraged, and I was trying to encourage him. This is the beauty of that. Paul wants them to know that he's been trying to get there, but he can't. He wants to get there, and he wants to encourage them with a spiritual gift. He wants to reap a harvest among them to see the spiritual fruit of that growing, healthy, vibrant church. And we can see the heart of Paul here overflowing for a people he's never met. Why is he so full of emotion? Because there's a faithful church in Rome. And he wants to get there. In Rome, of all places. He literally can't wait to get there, to impart some spiritual gift, to be mutually encouraged, and maybe someday to spiritually partner with them for the expansion of the gospel. I'll say it this way. The gospel calls us to encouragement. The gospel calls us to encouragement. To be a Christian is to live a consistently encouraged life. Know what I didn't say? Constantly encouraged life, right? We all know that we're not constantly encouraged, but we should be consistently encouraged. We should always bring ourselves back to who we are in Jesus Christ, one that flows into us from God and flows out to others in mutual encouragement. I get to see a little bit of this when I visit other churches and talk to other, pers- uh, other pastors at the aforementioned wedding of Corinne and Kyle. It was, it was a massive event. There was lots of green pond people there, and I had people coming up to me asking me, how's the church at Highlands? And I was able to tell them, it's amazing. God's grace and kindness is upon us. And guess what? That encouraged them because they pray for you guys. They love you guys. And they love to hear that we're doing well. It encourages them. People are genuinely encouraged to hear of your faith, Highlands. And it encourages others. When we hear from our missionaries, and we're encouraged in their work, the harvest, the fruit. Author and seminary professor Dr. Tom Schreiner put it this way. What inspires and fortifies other believers is when they perceive faith in other Christians. Seeing other believers trust God in the course of everyday life reminds us that God is indeed faithful and encourages us to trust him as well. Now, where is one place where a bunch of believers can be in the same place at one time and kind of, you know, spend time together regularly, get to know each other, join in like maybe some sort of official kind of 
I don't know, covenant of membership together. The, the church. Church, that's what part of what the church is for. It's the place of encouragement. And it, honestly, as a shepherd and a pastor, it kills me when people cut themselves off from the church. It's like, this is the very thing that you need. You need this encouragement. You need the body of Christ more than ever. This is the place of encouragement. We get together in care groups. We do so to encourage one another in the faith. We gather for prayer meetings like, oh, I don't know, tonight at 6 p.m. in the law office. We encourage one another. Even when we get together tomorrow to celebrate the life of Ron Tishner, we encourage one another in a life lived faithfully and look forward to our reward. Scripture calls us to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. We're thankful for one another. We pray for one another. We want to physically be with one another, again, for mutual encouragement. I'm not sure about you, because life can be discouraging. Can it? We all were discouraged and grieved this week when we saw the tragedy in Nashville. We think about that. We think about the effects of sin continuing in our society. We should long to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ like Paul for mutual encouragement because the gospel calls us to encouragement. And so church, are you seeking out the physical presence of your family in Christ? Are you prioritizing that? Are you thankful for them? Do you pray for them? Are you mutually encouraged by seeing their spiritual fruit? Maybe it hasn't been the most encouraging season. Can I encourage you then even more? Get around your brothers and sisters. Here's a challenge for you this week. Encourage someone. Find someone to encourage in the faith. Pray for them. Ask them how you can pray for them and pray for them. Or better yet, pray for them right then and there. And then ask them again how that thing went. Be thankful for them. Express thankfulness for them. Encourage each other. Find some specific thing you can tell them and encourage them about. Some evidence of God's grace or Christ-likeness that you saw. I saw that time when your child was freaking out and setting fire to the living room. You held your cool and you helped your wife. That was Christ-like patience and grace, right? Practicality, right? Encourage someone this week. Get an email address of a missionary that we support and encourage them. How about this? Encourage your spouse. Tell them how thankful you are for them. Pray for them. Encourage each other. We do this in our, our men's leadership group. We find evidence of grace and we encourage one another when we meet. We pray for each other. The gospel calls us to encouragement. And so where does all this leave us? And you guys thought I forgot about 14 and 15, but I didn't. I always do that to you guys. This is my favorite part of this verse. Look at 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Paul's under obligation. He is compelled. This is what he was called to do. Elsewhere, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I got to preach it somewhere. It's going to happen. Paul, that's why he's on the earth, is to preach the gospel. And he says, I'm compelled to preach the gospel to the wisdom of the Greeks and even to the barbarians. Barbarians, not really a derogatory term. It just means a foreigner. It means someone, it's literally like, what do they call that? The onomatopoeia kind of thing where it's like the, the language is like ba ba barbarian. It's like they don't understand it. It's a, it's a foreign tongue. And who, who does this call go out to? He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
No, wait, hold up. I'm confused. Because I thought Paul was writing to Christians. I thought he was writing to the church at Rome. So why does the church need the gospel? I mean, you only need the gospel once, right? You raise your hand when you're three years old at VBS, or you throw a stick in the fire at youth group, or you rededicate your life 17 times on a retreat. Like, you, you just need it once. And then you, you move on from the gospel, right, to bigger and more weightier theological things. No, you don't. You never move past the gospel, ever. So Paul says, guess what? I'm anxious to go to Rome, to the church, to Christians, to preach the gospel to the church. Because we still need the gospel. Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. The gospel is for the whole world. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, and Christians. Christians need the gospel. Not that we're getting saved again, but that's where the encouragement, that's where the endurance, that's where the growth and the maturity comes from. We just grow deeper into the gospel itself. We never move past the gospel. We never forget the gospel. And I hope if you spend any time at all at Highlands Bible Church, you see that the gospel is the center of everything that we do. We read the gospel. We sing the gospel. We preach the gospel. Hopefully we're gospeling one another. There, I just turned it into a verb. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, has a wonderful line in it that says, Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Get that? The gospel does that. It saves us from God's wrath. It's salvation. But it also makes us pure. It also causes us to grow. The gospel is the means by which we grow. You could say it a different way. Making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And we do that through the gospel. Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. When he goes to another church at Corinth, guess what he's preaching? The gospel. Every church he's going to preach the gospel. The gospel calls us to many things, believers and non-believers alike. It calls us to complete devotion. It calls us to Jesus. It calls us to encouragement. And the gospel is for everyone, believers and non-believers, just in different ways. Here's the big idea as we land the plane. The call of the gospel goes out to the world and to the church. The call of the gospel goes out to the world and the church. And so which one are you? If you're in Christ, right, church, members of Highlands Bible Church, if you're already a Christian, the gospel calls you to complete devotion. What is your devotion level to Jesus? The gospel calls you to Jesus how well do you know Jesus? Do you know the biblical Jesus? Do you know about your union with Jesus? Do you know what that means? Your identity as a Christian. The gospel calls you to encouragement. Are you prior prioritizing time with other members and encouraging them? Are you enjoying the fellowship? Are you seeking it out? Maybe if you're not a believer or you're not sure you're a believer, the gospel goes out to you as well. God exists, and he loves you. But your sin is separating you from him. And he's made a way for you to be reconciled. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And he calls you to repentance and faith in that. Maybe you think there's another way to get to God. Or a custom way that you've created yourself. There's not. The gospel calls you to Jesus. This Jesus, the one Paul declares here, the gospel calls you to be encouraged if you're with us today and you are not 
a believer. The gospel calls you to be encouraged that guess what? You can be forgiven. You can have that guilt removed. You can have eternal life. You can finally have peace in your soul. It calls us to encouragement. You can be forgiven. In short, the gospel calls out to you if you're not a Christian for salvation. Just like for the believer, it calls out to us for growth and sanctification. If you're not a believer, it calls out to you for salvation. Church, may we all heed the call of the gospel this morning. Lord, we thank you for this word. Such a deep and weighty introduction to what is a wonderful book about the gospel. Help us, Lord, to focus our whole lives on the person and work of Jesus Christ and be in complete devotion to him. But Lord, help us also to realize the blessings of the faith, to be encouraged in the faith, to be strengthened. And may we live lives in the obedience of faith that bring glory to the name of Jesus, both here and around the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.